Hi, this is Esti, host of the Friday A Public Affair. I hope you help us by contributing to WORT and you can also subscribe to the podcast. Bye. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. No power frequency radio. No one in power ain't giving up nothing. No change without struggle. No one in power. W-O-R-T, 89.9 FM, listener-sponsored community radio, Madison, Wisconsin. And hello, welcome to A Public Affair. I am Esti Dinor. We have a two-part show today. In the second part, we will be hearing a, an interview that was pre-recorded just before we started this show with Suzanne Adeli the first Arab American president of the National Lawyers Guild, and that'll be about South Africa's genocide petition, which has been heard the past two days. But to start, we have Ramzi Baroud with us. He's a U.S.-Palestinian journalist, media consultant, author, internationally syndicate columnist, editor since 1999 of Palestine Chronicle, former managing editor of the London-based Middle East Eye and former deputy managing editor of Al Jazeera Online. He's the author of six books and a contributor to many others. His latest volume, co-edited with Ilan Pape, is Our Vision for Liberation, Engage Palestinian Leaders and Intellectuals Speak Out. And thank you, Ramzi, for taking some time from your busy schedule to join us today. As of uh, yesterday, at least 23,469 Palestinians have been killed, 59,604 injured in Israeli strikes on Gaza since October 7. That's according to Agence France Press. About 7,000 people remain missing under the rubble and are presumed dead. Britain-based charity Oxfam said on Thursday that the daily death toll of Palestinians in Israel's war on Gaza surpasses that of any other major conflict in the 21st century, while survivors remain at high risk due to hunger, dehydration, diseases, and cold, as well as ongoing Israeli bombardments. According to an analysis of Copernicus Sentinel-1 satellite data, by the CUNY Graduate Center and Oregon State University, the war has killed more civilians than the US-led coalition did in its three-year campaign against ISIS. The offensive has wrecked more destruction than the raising of Syria's Aleppo between 2012 and 2016, Ukraine's Mariupol, or proportionally the Allied bombing of Germany in World War II according to a report by the Associated Press. In the meantime, it seems that American mainstream media has lost interest and we don't hear much about what's going on there. What do you know about the latest from Gaza as well as the West Bank? Well, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned that, Esti, the West Bank as well. I mean, all that you have uh, stated uh, about Gaza indeed uh, conveys at least a glimpse of the uh, horrific reality that is experienced by the Palestinians, by the 2.3 million Palestinians uh, in Gaza. But also there is another story that is um, uh, quite difficult um, to endure, and that is um, the, uh, um, the ongoing uh, attacks uh, on Palestinians throughout the West bank i mean the israeli military has violated every understanding with the palestinian leadership in the west bank they are invading villages towns uh, refugee camps even the city of ramallah itself has been repeatedly invaded invaded by the israeli army uh, and there's serious fear in the west bank that israel's plans to displace uh, Palestinians in Gaza could also be carried out against West Bankers um, as well. Now, what is going on in, in, in Gaza at the moment is that um, nearly 1.9 million Palestinians have been pushed 
to the center and the southern regions of uh, of the Gaza Strip, particularly um, at the Rafah border, which uh, the area that separates between uh, Gaza, the Gaza Strip, and Egypt. Um, Israeli politicians and officials have made it clear that their ultimate goal is to push the Palestinians out of um, the Gaza Strip, basically to ethnically cleanse the Palestinian population of Gaza. The language that they use um, may differ in terms of um, how do they uh, wish to do so. For example, Netanyahu, the Prime Minister of Israel, speaks about what he refers to as voluntary migration, meaning that we will starve them enough uh, and blow up the wall between Egypt and Gaza so that they have no other option but to run into the desert, you know, seeking survival, food, or anything. Um, while others, uh, especially the likes of, of uh, uh, Bisley Smotrich, uh, speak of, you know, kind of pushing them out by force. Um, ultimately, the outcome is the same, whether you starve someone to the point that you force him out or you actually physically push him out, uh, it makes little difference. There is uh, still keen interest in the idea of ethnically cleansing Palestinians out of Gaza. And if you look at the, at the progress of the Israeli military, and by the way, they are not doing well at all in Gaza, but, but if you look at the strategy uh, and of dividing Gaza into several sections in the north, in the center, and in the south. It seems that this is what they have really been driving on from the very beginning, which is just to create this massive concentration of populations, especially in the um, Tal Sultan area near Rafah, Al Mawafi between Khan Yunis and Rafah in the south, and ultimately push the Palestinians um, out. Of course, this is going to fail because this is not about. Uh, uh, it's not a decision that Israel makes on its own. It's the decision of the Palestinian people, and they have made it very clear, genocide or no genocide, we are not leaving our homeland. Yeah, so uh, you said now that um, Israel is not doing well in Gaza. You also have uh, written about it. And... Um, it's the first time that um, I encountered this um, assertion, considering the numbers of people that have been killed and, and injured and the tremendous destruction that Israel has wrought on Gaza. What do you mean when you say that? Well, so let's be clear on, 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 on one point. Killing innocent civilians is, is a cowardly act, and it's not a military uh, achievement. Um, anyone um, can, can hurt civilians in, in any environment, anywhere, uh, simply because they are defenseless and they are not anticipating that they are going to be involved in a military conflict. Um, so if, if killing civilians is an achievement from the Israeli military point of view, then they have indeed they are indeed victorious. But it doesn't work this way in warfare. What works in warfare is what are the strategic objectives a, a, an army has before going to war, and what do they achieve from these strategic objectives? They said they wanted to occupy Gaza. Then they said they want to administer Gaza. Then they said they want to destroy Hamas. Then they said they want to dismantle Hamas. Then they said that they don't want to stay in Gaza, but they want someone else to manage Gaza for them. The Arabs, the international, uh, some international uh, uh, parties. And, and the goals, the strategic goals, are constantly changing. Almost every day there is a new goal, and an old goal is being dismissed simply because they are not able to achieve any of the lofty goals that Netanyahu has created for himself from the beginning. However, one element of this equation that remains true from the first day of this war until this day, and that is the constant killing of civilians. Um, just uh, a couple of hours ago, the, the, the Ministry of Health produced the latest numbers of Palestinians killed, uh, and it was 151 uh, in the last 24 hours. Um, quite often, it's, the number is higher, sometimes much higher than that. But that's pretty much kind of a reflection of the everyday reality. 
nearly 100 Palestinian uh, child has been killed per day, according to Save the Children, uh, uh, citing uh, official uh, United Nations sources. 100 per day, so it's over 10,000 Palestinian children have been killed so far. There is, there is no other conflict, as you stated in the beginning um, of the show, that can be compared to this in any way. There is no proximity uh, for these numbers to make any sense. But as far as the battlefront is concerned, um, they pulled out from certain parts of Khan Yunis, Garara, um, the station area. They pulled out from certain parts of northern uh, Gaza, uh, near Shati, Beit Lahia, and so forth, simply because they could not penetrate the, um, the, the, the local resistance that exists in these areas. But they continue with the aerial bombardments and the targeting of hospitals, schools, mosques, churches, all civilian infrastructure, resulting in this massive number of casualties on the part of the civilians. Mm -hmm. So just um, a little bit more about that. Um, I, I am, I will admit, surprised every once in a while to hear that um, there's uh, heavy fighting in this part of Gaza, in that part of Gaza. Um, apparently Hamas is um, stronger and better equipped than, um, than the Israelis and perhaps the world has thought. What, what can you tell us about that? You know, it's, it's actually interesting that when Hamas started as, a, as a, the military wing of, of Hamas, when it started, uh, the Al-Qassam brigades. I was actually living in Gaza at the moment. Um, and wow. I do remember when they made their announcement, uh, they made it from uh, what we call the Martyr's Graveyard. That's in the North Iraq refugee camp, which is one of the main uh, centers of the resistance that is taking place uh, at the moment. I was living in the camp at the time, and, and, and there was about four people dressed up in really these kind of funky homemade costumes, uh, and they held a, a pistol that they um, either bought or stole from the Israeli army in Gaza. And for us, that was quite a shock, just witnessing that scene of young people with uh, a pistol, and we, we knew the kind of retaliation that this is going to result in. Indeed, the Israeli military invaded the camp, they searched every house, they arrested a lot of people, they beat up a lot of people. To think that that same group is the group that is fighting in Gaza at the moment raises a lot of questions. Um, on the, as far as the Israelis are concerned, raises the questions of, does military and firepower and, and military superiority make a difference when you are fighting against a nation that is simply trying to be free? I mean, all the firepower in the world is crystallizing the power of the IDF. Yet that has failed to achieve anything. To the contrary, it has, in fact, augmented the power of the various Palestinian groups in the Gaza Strip. But it also raises other questions about the war itself. If you couldn't beat them back then, and Ariel Sharon, one of the most notorious Israeli military generals and one of the most respected within the Israeli political context, left Gaza in 2005, hurriedly so. In fact, I remember in the last night when the last Israeli soldier deployed out of Gaza to impose the siege in 2005, the refugees of the camps chased after them right to the last soldier stepping out in, uh, you know, into the border, the outside border in Gaza, what we call the Gaza envelope. Until the last moment, people were chasing after the soldiers. That was a time when none of what you see in terms of the capabilities of the various Palestinian groups have existed. And they couldn't beat them back then. Why would they beat them now? So this is a war that was lost from the very beginning, only by judging the progress of the capabilities of these groups and the steadfastness of the Palestinian as a people. And, and that's another, another thing that I think is really worth mentioning here. This is not about the capabilities of Hamas per se. If this is about uh, firepower on the part of the resistance, well, guess what? Palestinians in the West Bank actually have more 
armed um, security forces than those resisting in Gaza. They belong to the Palestinian Authority. There are over 60,000 of them, and they have far superior uh, 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 type of weapons that have been supplied by the Americans themselves. They receive training from uh, from the U.S., from Jordan, from Egypt, and from other parties. But since they are not supported through any sort of a popular movement within the West Bank itself, they are irrelevant. They are not part of that fight. Hamas has a lot less uh, number of actual security forces, yet they are able to do what they are doing in the Gaza Strip. This is another fundamental point that we need to keep in, you know, take into account. Um, disarming Hamas or not disarming Hamas, defeating or dismantling Hamas or otherwise, it will not make a difference simply because the Hamas itself is a consequence of something else. The question is, what is that something else? The something else is the Israeli occupation, the Israeli siege, the Israeli apartheid, the, the oppression, the social inequality, the, the torment that the Palestinian people have been experiencing for all of these decades, resulting in Hamas, and prior to Hamas, resulting in the rise of the socialist resistance movement, and prior to that, to the Fideiyin movement, and so forth and so on. In other words, if you remove Hamas from the equation in, right now, nothing will, will change in, in the fundamental relationship between the Israelis and the Palestinians. The resistance will take on different forms and will be other groups and other ideologies. In other words, the problem is not Hamas. Hamas is the, the outcome of the problem. And the Israelis or the Israeli government refuses to acknowledge that after all of these years. Yeah, and you know, I'm thinking um, <clears throat> if my math is right, Israel has succeeded by now of killing about 1% of uh, Gazans, which is, it, it's staggering. I mean, if you um, thought about what 1% of the U.S. is, I, I haven't made the, I haven't done the math, but it would be a, a huge number of people. But that means that 99% are still um, alive. And uh, it seems to me like every child who survives this genocidal campaign um, is likely to want revenge as, as they grow up. And so even if Israel was successful in eliminating every last Hamas person, um, as long as it is the Israel that it is, um, and does what it does, there will be um, there will be resistance um, by by people who really have not much to lose. So um, so that's that, that's just my little spill here. But um, I also wonder what you know about something we don't hear about, which is the number of fatalities and injuries of the Israeli military. Right. So, so this is really kind of quite an interesting uh, thing that's happening uh, because if we look at the uh, uh, reports coming from Israeli media, especially the likes of Haaretz, but as of late also you know, and other kind of larger mainstream uh, Israeli media, they are looking at the numbers of Israeli soldiers as being reported by Israeli hospitals as opposed to what is being declared by Daniel Hagari and other spokesperson for the Israeli military. And what they are saying is, is completely, completely inconsistent with the numbers that the Israeli uh, military is, is producing. For example, they are saying over 2,000 soldiers have been wounded since the beginning of the war. That's what the Israeli military is saying. But then you have um, other ministries of the Israeli government and, and, and various hospitals in the country that say that actually the number is, um, of of the of those who have been disabled uh, as a result and are incapable of going back to the war, according to her, it's about twelve point five thousand. So if you if you just and, and this is the number from about three four days ago. So if you do the math, how many people who were injured but haven't yet been designated as disabled? You are going to mm -hmm. find that the number is much bigger. Now, what is the ratio of dead and wounded in any war? I've consulted with numbers from World War I and World War II. 
when firepower was far less effective as it is right now. And if you know, watching what's happening in Gaza right now, you'll find out that most of the attacks by Hamas and other groups tend to have, have, been, uh, have uh, happen rather at a short distance, uh, what we call uh, distance zero in terms of combat, which means that the if, if you know the target is hit, it's going to be devastating for those who's, who are being hit. Yet, according to numbers from World War One and Two, quite often that the ratio is one to three, if not even slightly less. Meaning, for every three uh, soldiers hit, one usually dies. So, if you if you look at the math based on that equation, you're going to find that the number of Israeli soldiers who have been killed in this war is a lot higher. I don't want to put a number on it. Uh, myself, but just really just looking at what the Israeli media itself is producing, then, then the number is definitely going to be higher than any war fought uh, by Israel against um, Arab standing Arab armies uh, in traditional warfare, including the war of 1973, which was at least initially one of the most uh, uh, effective in terms of Arabs kind of taking charge of the battlefield in the beginning before things were reversed, and, and we know that the, the history of that story. But it would actually be more effective than that. And this is why I think there is this understanding, and I think it's an accurate understanding by Netanyahu and others, that if we don't win, we lose. And it's going to be the kind of loss that is going to cost us politically. You don't just lose a war and think that you can just you know, push a reset button and things are going to be okay. It doesn't work that way. If you lose a war, there will be a political price. And the political price is going to be Israel would have to learn that there is no military solution. And it's only the end of the occupation that Palestinians have to be granted their rights, that Israel needs to learn to respect international law. This is too much for Netanyahu and, and, and his far-right ministers, the likes of, likes of Ben Gvir and Smotrich, Diri and others. They can't fathom that such a reality could um, result from a war against a small group that makes its own weapons you know, underground. And this is why Israel is in this sense of panic. But you know, there is a saying that goes, if you are in a hole, stop digging. And I don't think Netanyahu, you know, understands this logic. He keeps digging a hole that keeps getting bigger and bigger. And, and that is going to even devastate his, his military and his government and his society um, a lot worse in the long run. Mm -hmm. Well, so you mentioned earlier Sharon um, taking Israeli um, forces out of Gaza. The same happened, of course, in Lebanon, also under Sharon who um, took over southern Gaza and uh, sustained so many um, fatalities and injuries, he, he had to leave. And so you'd think, um, and Sharon, of course, was somewhat of an Israeli fa um, ideological father of Netanyahu, so you would think that <clears throat> they might understand that this isn't going to work. So when I think about why Netanyahu is doing what he's doing, um, it seems to me like there's two main reasons. One is for him to stay in power and not go to prison uh, for corruption. And the other one is the desire to um, use the oil and gas that is in Gaza. And of course, the third one is to get rid of as many uh, Palestinians as possible. But what what do you what, what does he think? How do you understand what it is? What is his um, what does he think he can accomplish? Well, at this point, I don't think Israel will be able to accomplish anything. Now, in 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 Israel. In, Israel, in the history of Israeli wars against the Palestinians, um, Israel prefers the kind of, you know, kind of quick war, uh, the element of surprise, a war that is usually initiated by Israel. Uh, the outcome is determined by Israel. Everything is done according to Israeli calculation. What happened in October 7 kind of changed that, that whole thing and put Israel in this position where they felt like they needed to retaliate. 
but in the process of retaliation they failed over the course of nearly one failed over the course of nearly 100 days to regain the initiative meaning that turning the war into an advantage you know a shock of awe and an awe of sorts like what the, the u.s has done in iraq and in other conflicts so let's create this genocidal situation let's take advantage of this let's push the palestinians out they have been talking about ethnically cleansing Palestinians for a long time. You know, in Israel, they call it the transfer. Maybe this is the opportunity. The world is sympathizing with us because of October 7th. So let's try to achieve all of these goals, even though it wasn't really our plan at the moment to do so. But that did not work out very well, simply because the resistance was too strong. Let's be quite honest about it. If the resistance was weak and the whole thing was sorted out in three, four days, I think there would have been enough support for Israel internationally, uh, especially in the West, that if they actually ethnically cleansed some Palestinians, it would have not uh, had the kind of impact that it's having right now. But Palestinians held uh, in, in Gaza, they, did, they were not defeated, the people refused to leave, and a hundred days of these images of mutilated children has completely changed the perception of Israel and the Palestinians and the conflict among the majority of, of, of humankind. Everywhere in the world now, it's Israel that is actually struggling, badly struggling with the issue of immigrants, the Palestinians who are being perceived in a positive way. So Israel couldn't achieve any of the goals that they thought maybe it's a good idea to take advantage of the situation and to try to somehow achieve of some, of some of these long-standing objectives that we've always had anyway. Um, so I don't think Israel would, would, will achieve any of its objectives, including the ethnic cleansing of the Palestinians in Gaza. To the contrary, Israel will not just leave uh, with, with, a, with a, a bloodied nose um, as a result of this, this fight. I really do believe that this is the beginning of the final chapter of uh, this conflict. The fact that, for example, Israel today was kicked out of um, uh, an international sports competition because of what's doing in Gaza. In Gaza, I mean, this is all reminiscent of, of the the fall of the apartheid regime in South Africa. And I know that you have another guest who's going to be talking about what's going on at the ICJ. We're talking about a whole different reality that is being formulated because of what Israel has done. The question is, will the Israeli government make that realization, uh, or? You know, will they just prolong prolong the pain and the torment of the Palestinian people, and also ruin whatever reputation their their country still has anywhere, either in the region or worldwide? Yeah, and I guess my last question for you then uh, today is, what is Biden thinking? What? Why? I mean, if if not for Biden, this wouldn't happen. If not for American money and armaments, it wouldn't happen. What, what is wrong with Biden? <laughs> what is wrong with Biden? That's a really good question. Um, a lot of things are wrong with, with Biden or any human being who would allow for something of this nature to happen at his, uh, at, at his watch where he is actually able to decipher and understand. I mean, American officials themselves are saying in the beginning he doubted the numbers produced by the Palestinian Ministry of, of Health, but later on, American officials in testimonies to the Congress that we actually, they said that we actually think that the numbers are much higher. So he knows what's going on, yet he continues to fund the, 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 um, the uh, uh, Israelis with billions of dollars worth of munitions and armaments to ensure that this genocide is going to you know, carry on. Honestly, I mean, as a human being, I just feel like regardless of what happens, whether Biden wins or doesn't win, whether the Democrats stay or leave, it really makes no difference. The name of Biden, Blinken, Sullivan, uh, uh, Kirby, and all others are going to be written down in history with letters of shame. And nothing that the American government and administration could possibly do now or 10 years from now that will change this outcome. There is a major genocide, one of the worst in human history, has taken place and the Americans have funded, financed it, sustained it, and defended it from the very beginning until this day. 
Yes, yes, I um, agree with you, Ramzi, and I thank you so much for joining us today. Ramzi Baroud is a U.S.-Palestinian journalist, author, internationally syndicated columnist, and um, has a lot of other achievements. Ramzi, I hope we can talk again um, sometime in the future. Appreciate you joining us. It would be my pleasure. Thank you very much for hosting me. Bye-bye. And um, two more things before we go to our um, to our next guest. First of all, thank you to Jade, our, um, our producer who braved the horrible roads and uh, came to the station. I'm talking to you today from my home. And also, um, please know that the Martin Luther King Jr. Free Community Dinner that was scheduled for today, 4.30 to 7 at Gordon Commons, has been canceled due to the severe snowstorm. Stay tuned for our next guest. And we are going straight to our second guest. You cannot call during this time since this was um, pre-recorded just before we started this show. Suzanne Adeli is the first Arab American president of the National Lawyers Guild, co-chair of the International Committee, and member of the Bureau of the International Association of Democratic Lawyers. She has worked as an organizer and human rights and labor advocate in New York, Chicago, Egypt, India, and elsewhere. And she's here to talk with us about the South Africa genocide petition hearing. Thank you very much, Suzanne, for joining us today. It is the second day of the International Court of Justice uh, hearing South Africa's case charging the state of Israel with genocide. So many viewers around the world wanted to watch the first day that the United Nations web TV site sputtered due to overload. Um, tell us please briefly, what is the International Court of Justice? The International Court of Justice or the World Court, which is located at The Hague, um, is, uh, is, a, is a civil international court um, in which disputes uh, between states um, can be heard. Um, and it's one of the strongest institutions uh, within the international legal structure. Uh -huh, the okay. current president is from the United States. Uh-huh, okay. Um, are the judges in any way representing their countries? Um, I my understanding is that they are they are there to um, adjudicate the law, right? Um, but I think that you know we know that these bodies are all inherently political, and um, and the uh, judges will sort of will be influenced by the sort of the political determinations of their countries. Um, what is the Genocide Convention? Um, the Genocide Convention it, it is one of multiple international conventions um, that, you know, the, the world uh, sort of agreed upon that is sort of, that lays out uh, legal understanding, international legal understanding of, of what the crime of genocide is. Um, and uh, it, you know, the, the convention um, sort of came out of uh, concern to um, stop uh, genocide from happening after, um, you know, the world saw it play out um, against the Jewish community in the Holocaust and other um, communities within the Holocaust. And uh, what are the main points of South Africa's petition? South Africa... Um, which is a party to the Genocide Convention, as are many states, um, filed an application um, stating that there is insurmountable evidence that shows that Israel is engaging in um, the crime of genocide, right? Um, and that evidence is um, both showing the actions taken, right? Um, targeting civilians, targeting civilian infrastructure, imposing a siege, 
as well as evidence of intent, which is a main element of genocide. And I think that there's about 10 pages of direct quotes um, from Israeli officials expressing that intent um, to annihilate uh, the Gazan people in, in, in uh, various ways. Mm -hmm. And um, what, what else other than uh, these statements? I, I know it's an 84-page document, so what else is included in it? Um, I, I think that like, it, you know, it, what's included is, you know, what any sort of a strong legal case would include, right? Which is evidence of these actions, evidence of the intent, uh, evidence of the various elements of genocide, right? Um, and also kind of the um, determination of the jurisdiction of the court. Okay, and what, what other countries support this petition? Well, um, right now we have a long list uh, of countries who um, have joined in um, publishing official statements um, in supporting South Africa's case. It began with Turkey and Malaysia, um, Jordan, and um, now we see um, various Latin American countries um, um, and some countries in the Caribbean um, who are um, saying that they are supporting um, the South African case, that they're, they're endorsing it. Um, and, you know, this particular the hearing of, of the past two days um, is in some ways a preliminary hearing in, in that it's speaking specifically to uh, which is also included in the um, in the complaint, which is sort of a, a demand for immediate provisional measures to be taken um, to stop the current genocide from happening. Um, and I think that um, if if things go as they should, um, after uh, a decision on on the on the demand for these provisional measures um, is made, then we then there'll still be uh, another day in court to sort of continue to sort of adjudicate on um, the question of uh, Israel's uh, guilt um, in engaging in, in the crime of genocide. And I think it's going to be very important for the states to sort of continue to support South Africa throughout that process. Mm -hmm. and, and there's also a lot of uh, international organizations that are supporting this, correct? That's correct. I mean, um, right before South Africa filed, there was a, a global effort to bring together various human rights and anti-war organizations to um, demand an end to the genocide and and to uh, use their um, position as civil society organizations to pressure their governments to take action in, in the international legal mechanisms. Um, shortly after South Africa filed their complaint and uh, the coalition put out a statement uh, calling for the rest of the world to uh, pressure their governments to support South Africa's complaint. And within a few days, there was over 1,000 organizations uh, that signed on to that statement from around the world. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So um, I, I'm assuming you were listening. I, I know it's very early in the morning in the United States, but um, were you listening to the hearings? Did you... Um, are there things you can share with us that were discussed? Um, I listened to parts of the hearing. I haven't had the time to, to listen fully as I've been traveling. Um, but I think, you know, I mean, I did wake up in time to see the end of yesterday's. I haven't been able to see today, but I, I've, I've seen some reports. Um, and I think that, like... Um, you know, every, everyone who I know who uh, did see yesterday's hearing are in agreement that um, it was powerful and moving and, and, and the South African delegation did an incredible job um, in making in making the case. And in and, and, and today's hearing, from, from what I understand, you know, Israel is acting in a very predictable way, um, kind of using the same 
particular arguments that they're using that they've been using, you know, in the past few months as well as for years to um, counter accusations of violations of human rights, right? Which is um, saying, I mean, it, yesterday actually there was sort of a, an, an official Israeli statement that um, you know began, you know, with the with the implication that the South African uh, legal team. Uh, was acting as a legal arm of Hamas. And, and that's a very predictable position uh, as far as Israel is concerned, because, you know, <clears throat> and, and they, uh, when they want to, I mean, they've been acting with impunity, you know, for decades. Um, and, you know, when uh, that impunity kind of gets harder and harder to maintain, as Israel's crimes began to be kind of be exposed more to the world, uh, then you know this this framework of of, uh, of fighting terrorism is then used to create what is in, in many ways described often as like a non-law zone, a zone where human rights doesn't exist, right? And the United States does the same thing. Um, and you know, they're also kind of again crying discrimination against themselves. Um, and they're also, uh, from what I've from what I've read about what took place in today's hearing, also kind of repeating a lot of misinformation and propaganda uh, about what's been taking place. Um, but I haven't yet watched the whole thing. Yeah. So, um, what might we expect to happen then? Um... Today, it was the second day of hearing, and um, I'm assuming there's not going to be hearings during the weekend. Um, you said there may be a third day. What, what should we expect? What, what can um, be achieved? My understanding is that uh, we can expect a decision or um, on this preliminary hearing, right, which is 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 uh, being tasked with making a decision on the demand for uh, emergency provisional measures to be to be taken immediately to stop the genocide, um, and we should expect that in about a month, right? Um, and you know, we hope that the court works and uh, as it should. And, and, and will kind of make a det determination or, uh, um, or, you know, will come out with a ruling saying that, uh, you know, South Africa has made its case and, and, and we're, you know, the court um, is calling for these provisional, provisional measures to emergency measures to take place now. Um, and then we'd have to um, move into figuring out how to enforce that, right? Now, there is a good chance because it is an international legal order that's dominated by, you know, imperialist interests that, you know, there there, there is still a chance that um, the court will fail to do that. Right. Um, there, I, I've, you know, there's got to be a lot of like uh, efforts to try to sabotage this process uh, because it's really you know, exposing, you know, not just Israel, but in the United States. You know who is really aiding and abetting uh, this genocide in many ways. Um, now, in the future, as I was saying before, um, what is sort of being decided now it is around the emergency measures because action needs to be taken as soon as possible uh, to stop you know Israel's like murder of of, of Palestinian uh, civilians. Um, but there, there, there still should be an opportunity uh, to um, for the court to continue to continue to uh, <clears throat> look at South Africa, South Africa's complaint, and adjudicate on on the uh, main question of uh, is Israel engaging in genocide, um, and hopefully they rule they they will rule that they are. Mm -hmm. So if I hear you correctly, the best case scenario is that in about a month, the court will um, demand that Israel stop the genocide. Is that correct? Do we have to wait that long for just this call? 
Um, I mean, that, that's my understanding right now. You know, we, we're actually holding, you know, several meetings and calls with, with lawyers who are, have more expertise and have more experience in the ICJ. Right. And, um, uh, but this is currently what my, my understanding is. I think though that what really needs to happen both now and, and when that, you know, first ruling comes out is, you know, there, there needs to continue to be like an upsurge of uh, political pressure coming um, from states around the world. Because e even if, you know, we get a ruling saying, yes, you know, uh, we agree to these uh, provisional measures and, and Israel must stop their bombing now, must stop the murders now, stop the genocide. Um, you know, the enforcement aspect is still uh, one that we kind of have to think about, well, how how is that going to be enforced? And I think it's going to be through, you know, political pressure, you know, um, and, you know, obviously, you know, the courts sort of rely on their institutions like the Security Council and, and elsewhere to sort of enforce measures like this, but we know how useless those bodies can be. So I think it's really going to be about political pressure to say that, you know, for um, states to say, you know, we're we're going to, you know, more states should move to cut uh, diplomatic ties with Israel, more states should move to sanction Israel, um, more, you know, more states should move to, uh, you know, stop the the arming, the arming of Israel, you know, and, and, you know, we don't really have to wait for a ruling from, uh, from the ICJ to begin to do that, right? I, I think the whole kind of start, the, you know, the day that South Africa filed this complaint, I think was the start of, of uh, kind of a new stage of a global, of a global global south movement right or internationalist movement to say that we're not going to accept you know this kind of like blatant violent imperialist behavior from states like israel and the united states like who then then go to a security council to veto um a mere a mere ceasefire right so i i think it's, it's sort of galvanizing the global community in a particular way that we really could use that in this momentum uh, to put pressure to act now, you know, why wait? But I think that whether it's now or after a preliminary hearing or future de determination or a future discussion on whether genocide is actually taking place, I think throughout, you know, we have to continue to build that political pressure. Yeah, and, and that's important because among other things, and I think you said it, but, but in so many words, that the decision is not binding, right? I mean, it doesn't mean that Israel has to stop bombing the day that the decision is made, correct? You know, I, I think that actually, theoretically, it is binding, right? But but enforcement it, it would then rely on, you know, uh, bodies that, uh, let our, that, that will not act to enforce that, that binding op opinion. Yeah, like, like the Security Council, right? Um, but I think particularly states that do respect international, like international law and respect international human rights and respect international legal order, I think that a positive, like a positive determination from the ICJ will give them kind of the additional um, momentum or, or, or like permission that they need to take the next step to sanction Israel, right? Whereas in a place like the United States, there's zero respect for international law, except when it suits them. Right, and, and that's, that's the main issue here, isn't it? Because Biden could stop this in a minute if he chose to. Right, right. And, um, and he hasn't done so. Um, also, you mentioned the Global South, but I think that really in this case, the movement is is beyond the Global South. I mean, just looking at even what's happening in the United States and how many, especially young, but not only Jewish people have joined this movement and this struggle and, and demand for an end of uh, genocide. I think the movement is really global, isn't it? No, I mean, absolutely, it's global. Um, 
But I think that like, you know, what we need for that is to sort of like register to, you know, um, to result in, you know, m making this country understand that like that, that it cannot be business as usual. Um, it can't like they and, and that they also have to um, hold, you know, the kind of the liberal political community accountable, you know, for its continued support of 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 like administrations like the Biden administration and 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 their sort of tendency to really kind of like lead uh, kind of the imperialist agenda of the United States, sometimes beyond the Republican Party. I mean, of course, you know. Um, and, and, you know, that that's our political reality. And, and, you know, it can't just continue to be a choice, you know, between the two. And, and I guess the question um, is that, you know, when when can we kind of like break that particular barrier within the United States? And especially now, the day after the U.S. and the U.K. have begun to bomb Yemen, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Suzanne, we have very little time left. Is there anything you want to add that I didn't ask you about? Um, no, I, I think that, like, you know, just what you had just been saying a moment ago is, is you're right. I mean, this movement is global, right? Uh, and I think that, you know, we have to kind of be consistent about maintain of, like, you know, moving that, um, the movement forward and understand that it's going to be a long struggle Right, and, and we have to sort of fight in every arena, whether it be in, in international uh, legal arena or local legal arena or, you know, um, communities, uh, universities, or just like, you know, on the streets. So thank you. Yeah, and thank you very much for joining us today, Susanna Daly, the first Arab American president of the National Lawyers Guild, co-chair of the International Committee and member of the Bureau of the International Association of democratic lawyers appreciate you joining us while you're traveling and um thank, thank you bye-bye bye and thank you all for listening i'm std north bye-bye